Hello and welcome to the DMA Politics Podcast. I'm Michael Sturrock, Head of Public Affairs and indeed host of this podcast. As you may have seen on our website, the DMA has been running an article series as part of the Value of Data campaign on contact tracing apps and the debate surrounding the use of technology in health policy and beyond. One of those who kindly contributed to our series was Dr Philippa Whitford, the Member of Parliament for Central Ayrshire and the SNP's spokesperson for both health and Europe. Not only this, but for 30 years prior to becoming an MP, Dr Whitford was a breast cancer surgeon in the NHS and has boundless experience on the ground from the medical and indeed policy side. I was keen to catch up with her once more as last week the SNP government in Scotland released their Protect Scotland contact tracing app and I was very keen to hear how they had gone about it. So I caught up with Dr Philippa a little earlier on. Welcome to you Philippa. Good morning, hope you're well. Yes, all good here. Thank you for joining me. Um, so I, I read during parliamentary recess, you were, you were back helping your, your local health board to, in, the, in the thick of it in the coronavirus response. How was that being back? Um, well, it, it was lovely to go back and see some well-kent faces in the hospital I worked in before, but I wasn't doing anything heroic on the front line. I was much more involved in the kind of designing the COVID response and particularly because I'd looked after breast cancer patients for over 30 years I got involved in an end-of-life project working between the hospice, the hospital, care homes, home carers, trying to share uh, training and knowledge about how to manage symptoms and also try to offer um, if you like some support and connection among the care homes Um, because as in other parts of the UK care homes are largely private businesses and therefore the staff can end up feeling a bit disconnected and uh, you know not not plumbed into to everything else uh, so it was that kind of thing and now we're working on or the team I've now finished with the NHS again but uh, the team are doing a project on trying to connect in unpaid carers you know people become a carer so slowly they often don't recognise that they are one and therefore they don't ask for help. So we're trying to find ways of reaching out to people who were unpaid carers or sadly through COVID have become unpaid carers. Yeah, absolutely. What a, a huge problem to tackle. And as you, as you say, it kind of transcends all different areas of health policy, right from, as you say, the front line to yeah, caring at home. So, and, and being a doctor, you, you would think this is a, a huge advantage as a, a health spokesperson and, and someone in policy now. Do you, do you find that or is it a completely different kettle of fish? No, I mean, a lot of the skills are directly transferable. I mean, even from the point of view of holding an MP surgery, it's very like a clinic. You know, tell me what your problem is. Can I diagnose the underlying issue? Is it something I can fix? So, um, and, and, and obviously being an MP is very much about people skills and being interested in how to improve your local community. So, so quite a lot of it in the constituency work is directly transferable. And obviously one of the weaknesses I see in the House of Commons is the, the sheer proportion of, if you like, what's often described as career politicians. You actually need people who bring the real world into Westminster. And having spent 33 years on the front line of the NHS, that's what I try to do. Speaking up for, you know, health in all policies to promote well-being um, and also to speak up for the NHS, not just the NHS in Scotland, but also the NHS in England, which obviously has been going through quite a torrid time uh, since the Health and Social Care Act in, in uh, 2012. Mm. 
as I understand that there's a is there a handful of doctors in the, the House of House of Commons? Do you, do you all get together? Do you all discuss in a, in a kind of little group? Is there a, do you meet up for coffee and discuss where to go with health policy? Sadly, we don't. Um, and obviously, there are people who are doctors who've been in the House of Commons now for many, many years, and therefore their uh, you know their practice knowledge, etc., is unlikely to be up to date. So mm. um, you know they may be doctors, but now they are well and truly. Um, politicians I would say yes I've been there five years and it's quite hard keeping your sort of accreditation and so on going but if you cut me through the middle it would still say doctor uh, mm. on the inside rather than politician but you know it, your comment brings forward something that had struck me I mean Covid per se is not party political it, it has become so in that obviously there is criticism of different decisions that were made, different policies that were brought in, in Westminster particularly, how contracts were outsourced, often without proper tendering procedures, and, and therefore there's a lot of criticism. What they could simply have done right at the beginning is to involve MPs who had either a biomedical or medical background cross-party and say, you know, please come and join the task force. Let's let's actually work together across Parliament so that you have input, and we can hear your ideas. And and obviously that was just something that never occurred to them. But I mean, there is, I mean, there's probably, I don't know, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it would probably be ten or twelve, something like that, doctors mm. across all the benches. Well, I've heard that the lawyers have a group and the journalists have a group, so maybe that's something you could start in the tea room from time to time. <laughs> um, yeah, so you discuss experts as well, and there's sort of an interesting relationship between governments across the UK and, and experts. And one of the things, of course, that we heard um, from, from a while ago now is that the, the public have had, or have had enough of experts, and then, but now we are, we are hugely reliant on experts, and it's almost as if uh, the experts have become political in a way as well, and because governments obviously have to make decisions of, of the best evidence and that doesn't always mean, especially in these times, that, that the best outcome has, has achieved. What do you think the dangers are around that? And do you think there's, there's a potential damage to the way public sees experts and um, experts advising government going forward? Well, I think, you know, for all governments, it's important um, for the public to remember there isn't a handbook of COVID. You know, it's not as if we started back in you know, January or the beginning of February with, with a whole guidebook of what we should be doing and then people didn't do it. Governments have had to feel their way. Um, some have been very clear about that. They have sought as much evidence as possible. They have tried to let that evidence be independent. Whereas obviously, you know, we have heard uh, of advisory groups and so on that have then come under influence or come under pressure over some of the advice. And, and that's a mistake. In the end of the day, it is politicians who, who make the decision. And, you know, I was glad when uh, the First Minister set up the Scottish Advisory Group, including people like Devi Sridhar, who are very outspoken, um, make no bones about the advice that they're giving. And I'm sure uh, are happy to challenge politicians to, to say, I know this is hard, but this is what you need to think about doing. Um, and, and from that point on, you see a, a divergence in the advice that we had a tighter lockdown, we had a longer lockdown, and there was a definite attempt to drive the number of cases as low as possible over the summer to get the kind of 
um, test trace isolate system up and running and, and the approach to those things north and south of the border are, are quite different. Our contact tracing is very much based on traditional public health whereas obviously in England the community tracing is outsourced to circle call centres who, who seem to be reaching really quite a low level um, you know 60% or less of contacts and that means you've got 40% of people who are not getting the advice to isolate whereas you need to be reaching these people reaching them quickly um, to try and shut down these lines of infection so you know there's quite a lot of um, diversion but what you have equally seen is um, you know some of those like chief medical officers and so on who are if you like, in government employ, may feel pressurised in what they can say, um, and people who are outspoken then sometimes being attacked as being party political, when actually their job and what they are doing is focusing on how to find our way through this. And, and it isn't easy, and there's no easy answers. Um, mm -hmm. But there, you know, we have to learn from our mistakes. So there, we have to learn from mistakes, we have to learn from research that we have now that we didn't have six months ago, and we have to learn from experience. So experts are critical to this, but they need to be given the space in which to speak out and give that advice honestly. Interesting. So you mentioned contact tracing there, and uh, that's that's really the, the reason I've invited you on today, other than, of course, to get your uh, distinguished advice as a, as a very, um, uh, as an MP. And um, so, yes, this last week, in fact, Scotland have released their Protect Scotland app, which is uh, designed to play a part in the role of tackling coronavirus in Scotland through um, identifying um, or being able to trace uh, where infections might have flared up and alert people to the fact they could have been in, in contact with coronavirus. So could you tell us a little bit about how the, the app and the technology works? Well, the, the first thing to, to realise is that this is, uh, if you like, an addition to what we're doing now. I mean, obviously, the Secretary of State in Westminster, they had talked originally when they were planning the NHS X app, that almost that would be the kind of key plank to contact tracing. Whereas, as I said, we decided to base ours on the very traditional structures that have been there. When you have an outbreak of food poisoning or TB or anything else, it's been based on that. So it's people. And the contact tracing in Scotland has been reaching, you know, well over 99% of cases and over 98% of contacts. So that is already incredibly successful. But what's much harder is casual contact. So if you test positive, when they phone you, they're going to say, who have you been in touch with over the last you know, week or two weeks? And you'll go, oh, well, you know, I met so-and-so and I was at work with someone else. But if you were on public transport, you don't know the people that you were around. Uh, and, and that's where it comes in. So, so people who are casual contacts that you simply don't know who they are, um, you put a code into your phone and then that will tell the phones you were in contact with. So for more than 15 minutes and closer than two meters, they will get a signal that says someone you've been in contact with in the last week or so has now tested positive and it will tell them what to do, who to phone, how to how to kind of put themselves into that system and obviously that's going to be quite important as universities go back because there's likely to be much more um 
you know, contacts or close contacts between students, more casual contacts, um, and both pupils, senior pupils and students using public transport. So, so this helps to give us a way of identifying the casual contacts that people have. But of course, we need people to download it. And the more people who do, the more successful it'll be. Hmm. So I noticed this morning there's, there's about 900,000 downloads approaching a million, uh, which is, I think, pr pretty good for a week. What, what's, is, there, is there a minimum number or, or percentage that need to have the app downloaded before it actually starts to make an impact on, on uh, contact tracing? Um, well, there isn't, I mean, there isn't a, a, a minimum or maximum, but there's a paper from Oxford University that looked at different thresholds where you start to get a real benefit. Um, so if we're at 900,000 plus, then we are over 15%. And it's estimated that if 15% of the population have it, you can reduce spread by 8%. Um, and, and therefore the more, and there are various steps. Now, Germany is at about 18%. Uh, the highest is Iceland, where 40% of the population have downloaded it. That's within the voluntary systems. Obviously, there are uh, some of the uh, Asian and Middle Eastern countries where it's mandatory. You must download the government app. Obviously, ours is voluntary, but the more people who download it, then the more chance there is of, of you being informed that someone you sat beside on a train or near on a train for an hour has now tested positive and you should take action. So that is a way of protecting you and protecting your family. But I, I think it's fantastic that so many people have downloaded it so quickly. So that's us beyond the, the first big threshold, which is 15%. So obviously, one of the big questions uh, throughout this, this whole debate, regardless of where, where the app was, was being released, and in the UK, the, why they've had this debate as well, was, was about the, um, the gathering of data uh, and, and personal data in particular. Um, obviously, the, the, the public has been given pretty good reasons not to trust large companies and organisations that are gathering their data over the past several years. Um, and I, I noticed that one of the one of the aspects, one of the things that the, the Scottish government was keen to stress was that they're going to take minimum data, and that the Scottish government won't have access to it for their free use. What what do you think the impact of this kind of data privacy debate will have on the uptake, and and what do you think the big questions are? Well, I, I think that is really critical. Um, certainly, the UK government and the original NHS X app was planning a centralised system where your data would be held. Um, and obviously, as you say, that creates real trust issues, particularly if you looked at some of the companies that were going to be involved, including a big American data company. So people are thinking, well, where's my data being going to end up? How is it going to be used? And, and obviously, trust is critical in something like this. And Google, Apple uh, were very clear that they would not host they would not enable or make it easy to use any app on their phones, Androids or uh, iPhones, that were data harvesting. So they came up with what was called a decentralized system, where simply you download the app, you keep your Bluetooth on all the time, and if you are close, um, basically your phone is sending a random code to phones around you, and they're sending a random code to your phone. It doesn't say who it is, it doesn't track what the location is, but it holds that code. And, and that's the only thing that is, is held. So that if there is, and it's held in your phone, 
but your phone will check against a database of people who've now tested positive. It won't have any of their details, but it'll say, you know, phone with this key code is now positive. And if that matches one of the key codes that you've collected, then you will get an alert. But it's, so it's not collecting any data about you. It's only then obviously when you, if you test positive, it will ask you, will you be willing to put your, this code into the system to alert other people? Um, and I think that's quite important. And, you know, quite a lot of countries who had thought of a centralized system to make the contact tracing easier, um, then realized that they were just never going to get the buy-in from the public. So the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland have in essence the same app uh, designed by the same company that have now created a modified version for Scotland. So has Gibraltar and it will interact with quite a few European ones like Germany. We haven't seen what the English app or, or England and Wales, I'm not sure if it's a combined one, um, what it'll be like, but they gave up on the centralized app. So I'm assuming that it will still largely be a decentralized app. And of course, we hope that they will be all compatible with each other so that it wouldn't matter where you're traveling in the British Isles or, or indeed to many places in Europe that actually that data would still work, would still trigger. Mm. So there was really a, there was a, a kind of conversation in public policy about, about the best option here. And then do you think, was it simply a process of elimination that countries have come to realise that actually this decentralised model is what the public wants and what, what is optimal? And what, why do you think that the UK government have been so, so slow to cotton on to that? Well, I think the, the UK government were keen to have a centralised system. We're keen to have their own system that they would say this is ours, it's unique. But actually, unique is not helpful in this situation. You want it compatible with as many other countries as possible. Um, and therefore, they were quite slow to, to okay. recognize that um, Google and Apple were not going to cooperate with um, their systems being used to harvest data. Um, and yet the UK government kind of went on. And if you remember the trial on the Isle of Wight, um, it didn't work on the majority of iPhones you know, the app kept getting closed down in the background. And if you didn't remember to keep opening it up, um, then it wasn't actually functioning. And if you did, it was just eating up your battery. So, you know, there should probably have been a change of direction at an earlier point. Um, but they did recognize both from the technical point of view of being used on Android and Apple phones, but also from the public's perception. You know, people have, as you say, been become quite distrustful of the idea of data harvesting and particularly if that data might be taken outside of the UK, outside of Europe and therefore not protected by GDPR, um, the, the, the kind of data protection rules. So, you know, if you don't have the trust of the public and therefore they don't download the app, it simply can't work. So, I mean, we, we have talked about the, these trust issues, but Ultimately, we're at a stage where we are using, um, I guess, a fairly by policy standards an advanced piece of technology to, to deliver a big aspect of public policy. Is this a positive thing going forward? And should we aim to include more technology going forward in, in health policy and beyond? 
Um, well, I mean, I, I think this is absolutely a, a positive step forward in that, as I say, it allows us to identify casual contacts that someone has. And every single person who self-isolates when they become positive or contacts that self-isolate means you've broken down a chain of infection that particularly, you know, when it is spreading, that can result in, in hundreds of cases. So the more chains of infection you shut down at the beginning, then the fewer generations of spread you have. But what we have seen is a huge amount of tech used in healthcare over the last seven months because of COVID. So things like um, video systems like Near Me, where you can do a consultation like this, uh, where you can send um, kind of high resolution photographs of a skin lesion, um, where patients who have chronic problems can, you know, check their own oxygen levels, things like this. You know, these projects have been going ahead for a long time, particularly in rural Scotland, where, you know, it's, it's not so easy uh, to access certain healthcare facilities. But it's been quite small and it's been quite slow. One of the incredible things and one of the real joys of being involved in the NHS during this was to see the way barriers that normally would take you years of talking and meetings and you know yada yada to get past simply fell over. It just became, how can we make this happen? How can we make it happen as quickly as possible? And there's, there was a real creativity and energy visible within the NHS to come up with solutions and to work to support social care. Now, in Scotland, obviously, we got rid of the outsourcing and so on, the trust system that had come in under Mrs Thatcher after devolution. And it has been Scottish policy to integrate health and social care for the last six years. But what this drew our attention to was, in a way, how short a distance we had actually got. Um, and we wish we had got further before this hit. But as, as the project I was talking about, there has been really, really close working between health and social care, strong relationships and trust formed that I think will actually move our health and social care service forward by a big step. Some of that is human relationships and trust, and some of it is using tech that existed, but people had not yet committed to it, had not yet got used to change. So people realize we can't go back to busy clinics with crowded waiting rooms. Therefore, how are we going to see people? How do we check up on people who, who actually have had their treatment? They're just getting a routine check. So, you know, there's lots of things that, yeah, we're doing this because we've always done it. But there are people, particularly clinicians, who've had good ideas, but often they meet a kind of real you know, it's like swimming through molasses trying to get that change to happen. Whereas now, if someone can bring forward an idea, it's being looked at and, and we've got that energy going forward. So tech is part of it, but also breaking down barriers is a big part of it. Mm. One of the big issues in, in health and, and wider policy um, is, of course, the, the bureaucratic side of things. Um, and there's some there's an article by a couple of health and tech experts a couple of weeks ago. Um, that said that really going forward and to have technological solutions, the only thing that we can really do is have some kind of ID card, a, a digital ID card. And obviously this is a big hot button topic at the moment. It was proposed, I think, by Dominic Cummings week before last. Uh, and people, as we've been talking about the trust issues, I think have a natural aversion to it. But 
This was done quite successfully in Estonia. They estimate to have eliminated 800 years of government bureaucracy in the last 20 years because they adopted the digital ID so early. Do you think that's something we should be looking at as well? Well, in Scotland, we already have a health ID number, your um, kind of community health uh, identification number, the CHI, which is used right across Scotland. I mean, when I was uh, a more junior doctor, every hospital had its own set of numbers. So uh, dealing with cancer as I did, some of my patients would go to the plastic surgery unit in Glasgow, others would go to the Beetson for radiotherapy or maybe specialized chemotherapy and it would be a different number. And, and the danger was always if you had someone of the same name and you have a different number, you know, can ID get mixed up? So it's many years now since Scotland has had a single unique number um, we all use the same uh, image sharing, computerized image sharing system. So in any hospital in Scotland, you can open up a patient's x-rays um, that were done somewhere else, that were done hundreds of miles away. And Scotland is already working on building an electronic record so that if someone comes in unwell, the doctors would be able to look for their CHI number and open up their entire record, meaning they, even if that patient's unconscious or isn't, you know, doesn't totally understand all their con conditions, the team looking after them would have all the information. So that's not necessarily about carrying a digital ID number, but obviously something like that uh, can then allow you to take that much more into, as you say, other areas of government. But working on electronic records rather than big bundles of paper, which you know, is what it traditionally was, uh, is something that's actually been evolving, evolving in Scotland for quite a long time. And, you know, part of the Scottish Patient Safety Programme is very much that kind of thing to reduce errors, that it doesn't matter what theatre a patient's being operated in, whether it's in their original hospital or a city centre specialist unit, their x-rays can be open so everyone knows which kidney is it you're taking out, which leg is the problem, which breast has the cancer in it, but also things like um, electronic drug prescribing. You know, the system won't allow you to prescribe penicillin to someone who's allergic. You know, it'll shout at you. So you can use tech um, to take a systems approach to patient safety by trying to eliminate some of the human factors that, that add to these things. So there's lots of potential, but a lot of it's already going ahead within the NHS and has been evolving for really the last decade or more. But certainly if you were going to be taking it into other aspects, then you may need to have some form of ID number that verifies that you are you, whether it's to vote or for your banking or, you know, legal aspect something like that so you, you know these are things that have to be explored and i've never really understood the whole objection to id cards here um because my my husband's german so when we wanted to get married i had to produce all sorts of id verification uh, to germany to prove i wasn't married to someone else so what is it we end up using we end up using a gas bill we, you know, if you have to prove your ID, we have all sorts of nonsensical things that we end up using trying to prove our identity and where we live. So it's not as if we don't prove our ID, we actually do it with things that have a much 
lower level of verification and a much lower level of security. Um, so I, I personally don't have a great issue with having a, you know, a digital ID or an ID card or, or whatever it is. And probably, unfortunately, after Brexit, that is going to be more important. And you see it from Europeans who are getting settled status. They have real concerns because the system isn't giving them, if you like, a physical verification that they have the right to be here, the right to work here, the right to rent property here. So, you know, while there is this kind of weird uh, schizophrenic approach to it, in actual fact, it can be quite protective of citizens rather than undermining them. Mm, really interesting. And of course, one of the one of the other technological advances in, in the policy world has been this digital par parliament. And indeed, I believe you're speaking to me from Central Ayrshire, your, your constituency, and you've been uh, zooming into parliament from there. Is that something you'd like to see continued? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the digital team at Westminster did an amazing job during Easter recess after the lockdown so that when we returned after the Easter break, we could vote electronically and remotely. We could speak in debates. We could speak in uh, scrutiny sessions, which is parliamentary questions and statements. We could take part in select committees. The only thing we couldn't do was take part in a legislative bill committee. And that purely came down to not enough committee rooms having uh, been digitally enabled with cameras and sound, etc. Um, and that's where the effort should have gone. But unfortunately, literally kind of a month later or so, Rees Mogg then shut all that down. And uh, people like myself who were in a high risk group or people maybe who had were shielding or had a shielding member of their family were suddenly excluded. Now, eventually the compromise they came up with was that we could take part in select committees. We can vote through another person who has to attend physically, but can cast our vote for us. And we could take part in urgent questions, parliamentary questions, but we are still excluded from debates and we're still excluded from legislation unless we physically attend. And I think that at the moment is just wrong that you are excluding, I've heard that it's about 150 MPs that are thereby excluded. Now, last year I smashed my left ankle really badly um, and had to go back because we had lots of key Brexit votes, we had a hung parliament, and I was traipsing up and down every week being dragged onto aeroplanes in a wheelchair, um, you know, my leg looking like a purple tree trunk at the end of a day sitting in the chamber. And so to me, I think that some, even when this is all over, some version of this should be able to be kept for people who are ill or, you know, women on maternity leave or MPs on paternity leave, in, instead of them simply being excluded. You know, if they had a partner who was terminal, you can't abandon them but equally you then cannot vote in parliament. You can't take part. Whereas maintaining now the technology is there. And I don't just mean, okay, I can't be bothered traveling. You know, you would have to provide, if you like, a, a certificate or letter of why you should have access to that system. But I think that system should be kept uh, going with proxy voting, not just for women on maternity leave, but also uh, for personal illness or family illness or trauma. Um, because the whole point is that MPs need to be able to take part in procedures to represent their constituents. 
Otherwise, you literally have millions of constituents whose MPs just don't have a voice at such a critical time. Mm, that's really interesting. Well, well, we'll leave it there for now. That's uh, been a really, really interesting and fascinating uh, discussion and really good to get, get your thoughts on things as a medical professional as well. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. And well, Dr. Whitford has uh, contributed to our Track and Trace article series as well, which is on our website under the uh, value of data tab. So please do have a look there. We've got lots of other experts who contributed to the debate about privacy and, and the functionality of, of uh, apps and all sorts of things on the website too. So please do have a look at that. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.